It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A victim of tyranny. That was the defiant cover story of the last ever edition of the Apple Daily as Hong Kong's final pro-democracy newspaper wrote its own obituary. China has tightened its grip on, some might say throttled, freedom of speech, the right to protest and political opposition in Hong Kong in the year since it passed its national security law. Well, let's begin with China. It's released details of its controversial new security law for Hong Kong. We knew this was coming, but details of the legislation were only published after it came into effect. The official line here in Beijing is that the new law is necessary for stability. But for a lot of people in Hong Kong, this is considered a pretty dark day. The law imposed Beijing's control on Hong Kong, dismantling the freedoms that had been preserved, in theory at least, under the principle of one country, two systems. Every country in the world needs national security legislation. So why should Hong Kong be an exception? Hong Kong is an inalienable part of the People's Republic of China. And in a way that people had feared, silencing Apple Daily, the widely circulated newspaper. One of those people who had feared just that was its founder, Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai has been detained many times. But this was the first time he was taken away in handcuffs. When Jimmy Lai founded Apple Daily, he made a statement about what the paper meant. It stood, he thought, for Hong Kong. And that when Hong Kong fell, so would Apple Daily. I was sitting with the ship because this place gave me everything. You know, I, I'm in debt to this place. I'm very grateful for what this, what this place has given me. So what does the silencing of Apple Daily and the detention of Jimmy Lai tell us about what's really happened to Hong Kong? Hello, and welcome to The China Problem, a thinking with me, James Harding. China is an economic superpower. So should we just face facts and do business with it? At the same time, it's putting a line through human rights and the rule of law. So should it be confronted? And if so, how? Today, we're going to try and address a rather difficult news item for us journalists. The intimidation of reporters and the clamping down on newsrooms. I went to Shanghai as a foreign correspondent in 1996. And I remember there was quite a lot of talk about a newspaper that had just opened a year earlier, in fact, in Hong Kong. Apple Daily, it was called, 
and it was scandalous and scurrilous and funny, and most of all, it was really interesting because it told you about what was happening, obviously in Hong Kong, but really much more interestingly for me, in Beijing. Its stories, well, you didn't always know whether they were exactly true, but those stories nonetheless seemed in some ways closer to the truth, certainly closer to the truth than what you were getting from any of the official Chinese Communist Party papers that were being published in mainland China. So what we're going to try to do now is assess the state of the media, of journalism, of freedom of speech, and, in effect, Hong Kong's relationship with China. I'm joined by Glacier Kuang, a political and digital rights activist who was born and raised in Hong Kong and now lives in self-imposed exile in Germany. And with us too is Cedric Alviani, who's the head of Reporters Without Borders, the East Asia Bureau, and he's based in Taipei. And Stephen Vines joins us as well. Stephen is a journalist who just this summer left Hong Kong after 30 years. I want to get a sense of what's really happening and, in fact, where all of this is going. And then I hope we might be able to do something beyond that, try and get a sense of what, if anything, those of us in the rest of the world can and should do. Glacier, if I can, I'm going to start with you. I imagine you grew up your whole life with the Apple Daily as part of your life. How significant has it been as part of the, the, the culture, the debate in Hong Kong itself? Hi, thank you for having me. As you said, I grew up in Hong Kong, so I basically grew up with Apple Daily. And the paper meant, actually, it is a voice of democracy in Hong Kong. I'm not saying the, the paper itself is perfect, but that it provides a very special and unique perspective of things in Hong Kong that other papers or other media at the time could never provide. It is one of the most supportive newspaper and media to the democratic movement that has been happening in Hong Kong for the last two decades. And I was very privileged to be able to join the Apple Daily family in a later stage, like um, before the national security law passed, I was invited to be a contributor to the English section, which was a huge thing for me because reading it all my life and then I was suddenly being invited to contribute to the paper and share my views about Hong Kong to the readers is actually amazing. But then I never thought like that would stop very quickly. I thought I'm going to be writing for years. But then after the government decided to crack down on Apple Daily and I can see a significant change in the attitude of my editors, they would tell me, oh, there are certain things you cannot write about now after a national security law. For example, you cannot call for sanctions. You cannot criticize anything that's related to a national security law. And they started to tell you that there are certain things that, can, that they cannot say. And it makes me quite sad because Apple Daily has always been criticized by the government or been praised by like um, democratic parties that it is the most outspoken newspaper. But suddenly everybody started to engage in self-censorship. That's actually quite heartbreaking for me. I'm just, I just want to ask Stephen about it too, because you, Stephen's also written, haven't you, over, over the years for the Apple Daily too. And for those people who are not possibly as kind of plugged into the ins and outs of Hong Kong media, you know, Jimmy Lai himself was a colossal figure, or is a colossal figure in, in the way in which Hong Kong sees itself. Did you think that he would be arrested? I think he was arrested in August of 2020. Did you think that sooner or later that was inevitably going to happen? Yes, I did. And I, I also put my hand up. I was a contributor to Apple Daily, as you say. Yes, the Chinese Communist Party has a particular obsession with Jimmy Lai. 
you, you, you don't need to guess at this. You look at their own publications, you look at the almost daily outpouring of bile against him, particularly before he was arrested. And I think we also ought to mention, he's most likely to be spending the rest of his life in jail as a result of arrests on numerous charges, not only under the infamous national security law, but also other charges that have been brought about him. I mean, they have thrown the book at him comprehensively. Did I expect that to happen? Yes, unfortunately I did. I have spoken to Jimmy and people around him. They also expected it to happen. That doesn't make it a good thing that it happened. Inevitability of wanting to suppress what Glacier referred to as being the only continuing mainstream media supporting the opposition movement was inevitable. And Stephen, just, just tell us, I mean, I suppose one of the things I'm trying to understand, and this is a kind of confession, if you like, is that I think Hong Kong hoves into view when you see those huge numbers of demonstrations on the street. But what's harder to keep tabs on is what's happened to the culture, the practice of journalism, what you feel you can freely and safely say. And I just wonder whether, you know, you've moved back to the UK, haven't you now, after 30 plus years reporting from Hong Kong. Can you just talk a little bit about the last two or three years, what what you felt had changed and in practical ways, how that affected you? Well, you're asking someone who rather peculiarly had a foot in both camps. I was both working for foreign media and for domestic media. I was... I suppose, more high profile in domestic media because I was a host of a television show run by Radio Television Hong Kong, which is the public broadcaster. And I was also on a weekly radio show. There, you didn't have to guess at what the red lines were because as the months, and I'm talking about recent months, say half a year, have gone by and and a new regime was installed to control Radio Television Hong Kong, The red lines, or as some people have described it, the red sea that emerged of restrictions was staggering. And how were those communicated to you? That was how sinister it was. I never spoke ever to a senior member of the the new management of Radio Television Hong Kong. All of this came in the form of um, electronic messages to the producer of the show or one of the other producers. They never, ever spoke to me directly. But, you know, we were told we couldn't interview this person, we couldn't interview that person. If we interviewed a member of the opposition, that would have to be somebody not in jail, and there's not that many of them. It would have to be counterbalanced by a pro-government figure. That was fine, in my view. I think that's how journalism is conducted. But apparently no balance was required if you purely interviewed one of the many pro-China personalities. That could be done without any balance. You mentioned that um, Taiwan was anything other than being uh, a province of, of China. That was banned. If you mentioned, God, I, I, I can't even tell you the, the great list of things you couldn't mention. But just to come back to your original point, even after 1997, even as long ago as two years ago, before the introduction of the national security law, there was a space. If you were on Hong Kong radio and TV in 2015, let's say, could you talk about Tiananmen? Could you talk about Tibet? Could you talk about 
Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. Could you talk about Chinese influence in Africa? Could you talk about the strategic rather than the commercial interests of Belt and Road? Did you feel as though there was freedom to do all of that? Yes, and it happened. So, so what we're talking about is not the culture of mainland China over a period of 20 plus years. We're talking about a very specific change in the way in which the media works since the, the arrival of the national security law. But let, let me, I'm just, I just want to bring in Cedric because I, it's really interesting to get a feel for how fast that has moved, but also how deeply that's moved. Cedric, you know, Reports Without Borders is set up to ensure freedom of speech. And for a long time within Asia, people look to, I suppose in different ways, Singapore and Hong Kong as places where reporters could gather and talk about the region without much worry about who was looking over their shoulder. How profoundly do you think that's changed as regards Hong Kong? That's been so fast and so deep. To, to go back to the uh, example of radio, television, Hong Kong, that uh, used to be a public broadcaster I mean, uh, just just like BBC, like uh, that was independent from the government. And in a couple of months only, they have managed to set up a system of censorship that is incredible. Steve didn't mention, but but I I believe they have deleted uh, a lot of programs from the archives. And they also have uh, suspended some programs just before they were supposed to be put on air. This is uh, something that was impossible to imagine in Hong Kong only two or three years ago. And, and, and Cedric, what about, for, what about for other news organizations? I mean, I remember when I was in China, one of the tools that the government used, particularly around briefings and access, was accreditation. Who's accredited, who, who's not? We've seen some people denied their visas. So there's some real practical blocks. A former colleague of mine from the FT was effectively sent home. How much are you seeing these more subtle, practical, bureaucratic tools interrupting journalists from doing their jobs? It has already happened. There are some journalists uh, willing to relocate from the mainland China to Hong Kong, for example, uh, having their visa denied. There, there is that case you mentioned about uh, the Financial Times editor who was uh, expelled and who is actually blacklisted now from entering to Hong Kong only for moderating a discussion at the Foreign Correspondents Club that wasn't even you know, part of his pure journalistic activities. And our concern is that in the future it would uh, become usual and that journalists, including uh, foreign correspondents, would be forced, just as it is about to become the case in, in the mainland, forced to uh, consider every time they write something, is this going to cost me my visa, is this going to force me to uh, leave the country? There's a phenomenon that is wider than only Hong Kong that uh, we have to pay attention to. Uh, in the past decades, China needed foreign correspondents. China needed foreign correspondents because somehow they were promoting China's economic development. They were bringing investors. They were bringing partners to China by reporting on China because their coverage was fair. They were not only talking on human rights issues. But over the past 10 years, China has developed a very impressive propaganda system that works everywhere in the world, that goes through uh, its embassies, that goes through its uh, state media, that goes through the purchase of uh, most Chinese language uh, media 
uh, outside of China. So now the regime does not need any more foreign correspondents to promote itself. So it only sees foreign journalists as unwanted witnesses, people who are investigating, people who are asking the wrong questions, who are talking to the wrong people. So it seems that the regime is uh, truly at war against foreign correspondents. And, and uh, I, want to, I want to ask Glacier a little bit about how that affects Hong Kong journalists and Hong Kong freedom of speech in one moment. But, but Cedric, can I just ask you to follow up? You mentioned the case of the FT editor, Victor Mallet. You mentioned the extent to which foreign correspondents begin to think twice about what they do and don't say. Obviously, Stephen Vines has moved back to the UK. Do you think what's happening to foreign correspondents already is that there's a self-censorship that has kicked in just because that's the only sensible way to ensure that you can do the job and ensure you can safely continue to work in Hong Kong? Until last year, I used to say, even though there is uh, more and more pressure on journalists, it's still possible to work as a journalist. It's still possible to investigate in Hong Kong. Now, I'm not so sure because it could truly create huge problems for a, a foreign, like Hong Kong-based foreign reporters that would report on uh, some issues. So uh, I don't believe right now, after the national security law uh, entered into force, it's possible for foreign journalists to uh, report uh, freely on certain topics. It's great that they keep trying, of course. It's actually worse because the situation is the people in the opposition now, rightly in my view, are very scared of talking to foreign journalists because part of the national security law says that if you're found guilty of collaborating with foreign forces, I suppose by definition a foreign correspondent is a foreign force, you could be guilty under the national security law. People who have been arrested have had their computers gone through and conversations with foreign correspondents have been noted as evidence against them. And as for talking to officials, the situation is pretty much like it is on the Chinese mainland, which is more or less, they don't respond. They will not receive the interviews. Glacier, can I, can I ask you about this? Because we were looking at the numbers and as of the end of August of 2021, there have been 143 people arrested in relation to the national security law, 81 people charged, three people convicted. And I suppose what I'm interested in is what the impact of that in terms of state power, state harassment of individuals does to behaviour. And I want to start with you, actually, the way in which you think about your life. You know, you're, you're not in Hong Kong. Do you think that you can campaign and be an activist in the causes that you, you care about only if you continue to re remain in effect in self-imposed exile? Even being abroad and living in like self-imposed exile, I do feel like I am being threatened by the national security law because I still censor myself when I talk about things because I think about if I would put the people that I know in Hong Kong in danger. Like I was participating in the electoral campaign of the primary election. And if I say something about the primary, that might be used against my colleagues. And this is 
how I became very cautious about every word that I use when I talk about things related to Hong Kong. So people living outside of Hong Kong are not actually completely free because we cannot cut all ties that we have from Hong Kong, even though we try very hard to do that, but it's imp nearly impossible to cut all ties with that. And on the other hand, I'd say being abroad and being outside of Hong Kong do give me more freedom in terms of like speaking what I can uh, speak and like fighting for the cause, but I still have that very strong sense of self-censorship anyways. And, and, ju and just give me a sense, uh, Glacier, behind you, there's a banner, and I can't see it because your head's there, Liberate Hong Kong, Revolution of Our Times, it says, in, in broad Chinese strokes and then in English underneath, if only my translation skills were that swift or frankly accurate. Um, but, but Glacier, do you think that you would be comfortable having that banner hanging up on your wall if you were in Hong Kong? No, I wouldn't be comfortable at all because this slogan has been recently ruled by the court that means subversion of the Chinese Communist Party. And uh, in the case of Tong Yen Kit, that is a national security law case recently being convicted and he will be, uh, he has been sentenced and so on. Uh, this is an illegal slogan and I would be immediately arrested for having this flag in my possession. And this is why I, I only dare to put it up because I'm not in Hong Kong. And for I have friends and I have activist friends who actually have the same flag. They have to mail it to someone else who is abroad or they will have to burn it on the rooftop and so on to avoid like being arrested for having this piece of cloth in their house. And so do you think that that's what we're seeing your case, which is a self-imposed exile in order to campaign for freedom of speech. And, you know, we've seen a number of people obviously come to the UK under great duress, to be honest, as well as some people who've opted to do so. Do you think that actually taking a 10-year view, and I'm sorry to put it so brutally because it's your life, but that's what I'm really asking, is that that's what this is going to be, is that people who campaign for freedom of speech in Hong Kong are going to have to do this in exile? I'd say yes and no. Of course, there are a lot of colleagues like me who are now living in self-imposed exile and still fighting for freedom of speech and all sorts of freedoms for Hong Kong. But there are still a lot of people that are inside of Hong Kong who are still trying to do the same. Of course, they're not going to be like very upfront about what they're doing, but there are always people who are trying to make use of however little room that's left in Hong Kong. For example, there are activists who are already being arrested for national security law, still coming out with campaigns behind bars, trying to think about how do they deliver their beliefs in the courtroom setting. There are always these kind of discussions happening on the ground, but they are not as visible as me talking to you or as visible as someone making a speech uh, in London or so on. But these are the things that are still happening. Uh, Steve, Steve, I'm going to ask you to do us a quick history lesson, if you might, because I think you came to Hong Kong well before I got to China. So you were there just between the negotiations on the handover of Hong Kong back to the People's Republic of China and 97, the moment when that happened. Could you just explain one country, two systems and whether or not China can defend the idea of the national security law within the context of one country, two systems? Well, the, the genesis of one country, two systems is that the promise that the PRC, the People's Republic of China gave and enshrined in an international treaty with Britain, the joint declaration, was that China would pursue its own system of governance. 
Hong Kong would be free to have, and these are the precise words, a high degree of autonomy in running its own affairs. And it would be a case of Hong Kong people ruling Hong Kong. That did in fact prevail, I would say, in the early years of the handover, i.e. after 1997. Incidentally, handover was a band, over, a band word as well. Mm-hmm. But it did prevail uh, in those early years, but there was a gradual erosion. You now see that, that basically the Hong Kong government is entirely answerable just to one party, and that is their controllers in Beijing. And incidentally, there's a sophisticated network that controls the people who run the Hong Kong government. There's the liaison office in Hong Kong. There's the state council in Beijing. There's another office in Shenzhen across the border with even more senior people, and they have to keep going up there for instructions as to what to do. What What I'm trying to work out is a bit who to blame and a little who to look to to try and fix this problem. And and so, I mean, we, we tried to get hold of Chris Patton, um, who's come along and spoken on this subject before. But he wrote a long piece in The Spectator, for example, where, in effect, what he said was the blame lies squarely with the thuggery of the Beijing leadership and Xi Jinping, right? I then have to say, as a British citizen... I stop and go, well, this was an agreement, as you say, a legal undertaking by two sides. And if there is a breach of that undertaking, is there not a responsibility of the UK beyond just providing visas for Hong Kong citizens in terms of trying to enforce those principles of freedom of speech inside Hong Kong? And actually, I should say, even as a journalist, I feel, well, how much blame sits with the world's media because this creeping erosion, pretty rapidly creeping erosion of Hong Kong freedom of speech has been only patchily reported. So I'm trying to work out who to blame. And I wonder, Stephen, when you sort of try to get your own hierarchy of this or organise your thoughts around it, how you think about it. Well, I I agree with the the, the piece that you've talked about that Chris Patton wrote for The Spectator, Mm -hmm. because the substantive change in the relationship did occur under the current leadership of Xi Jinping. Mm -hmm. It was Xi, who incidentally is now making himself president for life, who said, enough is enough. We're fed up with all this autonomy nonsense that we'd given to Hong Kong. And they rather regret that these pledges were made. So in Chinese official media, the way they've got around that is to say, oh, they're a matter of history. They're not relevant anymore. The joint declaration signed with Britain, it's a matter of history. We don't need to worry about it. Then you have to look at it at the other the side of the other party, which is the British. And I suppose the Chinese take the cynical view, as all autocracies do, how many gunboats are they going to send to enforce that agreement? I think they take the view, hey, we're the big boys here. We're in control. You can spit and splutter as much as you like. We're not going to listen to you. Glacier? From my perspective as a Hong Konger, I'd say the problem is more more about why is Hong Kong being left out in the whole conversation? We're never being asked what do we want, what did we want at the time? And we were being removed on the UN list of being able to have a referendum and decide our fate. And self-determination ought to be a human right. And that, that this question has been like in my mind for so many years that I'm not sure why we were never being allowed to join that conversation when the people are deciding our fate and what do we want for our lives. And it just makes me so upset that nobody is trying to 
fix that. And even for now, in a lot of conversations that I have with like foreign governments or foreign people, they don't actually want to know what Hong Kongers want. They're still thinking like, oh, Hong Kong, it's kind of dead. We cannot change China. So uh, let's think about other things. And they completely ignore Hong Kongers agency as they did in 1997. And that just kind of gives me a bit of like anger in my mind. But I do feel like there is a when the conversation continues, it's very important to take into account of what Hong Kongers want for Hong Kong and how do we deal with the whole thing in, in, in that sense. Well, you well, you very cheerfully made actually that devastating point because, of course, that's exactly what I did. I said, you know, should we be angry with, Hong, with Beijing? Should we be cross with London? Should we be angry with the media? So, so let me ask you then directly, what do you think Hong Kongers want? How do the people of Hong Kong fix this problem? I can only speak for myself because I'm not, I don't have a mandate, so I cannot speak for anyone who's never voted for me. In my mind, I think at least with the side, um, a, a chance of self-determination, we need a referendum on deciding what we want because that was taken away from us at the very first place. And myself, I would be down for an option that we will have genuine democracy, universal suffrage and fundamental rights guaranteed. And if that means we have to break from to a certain extent from Beijing's direct rule, then I would fault for that option. But I cannot say everybody would, would fault for that. But I think the slogan behind me, it says, liberate Hong Kong revolution of the times. And it was always mentioned in the movement in 2019. I think that makes a perfect point about what Hong Kongers actually want. They want genuine democracy. And if that cannot happen under China, then we might have a problem here that even the joint declaration might not be able to solve. But, 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 Glacier, then where does that go? Because, sorry also to be really direct back to you, is that is never going to happen under Chinese rule. I mean, let's face it, you know, they're Western democracies. I live in one which has got a pretty ropey relationship with referendums. The idea that the People's Republic of China is going to go, actually, you know what, Glacier Kuang, you're totally right. Let's, give, let's get you to host a referendum. That is not going to happen. So, so what's your plan, if you like, to try and turn this around rather than aim for something that's the dream, but unrealistic? I'd say before we go to the point of being able to have a referendum, the thing a lot of colleagues and I am doing are trying to change the perspective of people and of governments about China. Because no change is going to happen if the world stays the same, if everyone's like, oh, but Chinese has a big market, we're not going to give up the market. And so we're going to play along with like Chinese political correctness and so on. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is the problem I've got. I came to China in the 90s. It was enough years after Tiananmen that the West was beginning to say, let's re-engage with China. And frankly, it was a time exactly as uh, Cedric pointed out earlier, when China was eager to engage with the West. And there was an openness and excitement and new restaurants were opening and people coming from all over the world. And China was engaged and even quietly holding out the possibility that there would be a Chinese version of democracy that would go along with economic development. 25 years after that, that all feels like a, you know, strange kind of pre-truth myth. You know, it's a it's a curious time. But I'm caught, and particularly around Hong Kong's freedom of speech, wondering what to do. So tell me, if, if you're a Hong Konger, what do you want the rest of the world to do vis-a-vis China, beyond just understanding that there's a problem in Hong Kong? I'd say change the China policy and make sure that they understand when you're dealing with China, conscience and money, you only get to keep one. You can't have both at the same time. I know it sound, I sound very naive and very like activist minded because I am an activist and I'm supposed to be naive in that sense. And this is very important because we cannot all be like too practical when we're trying to make the world change for the better because it's always ideal. And for, ex- for example, in, in Germany, the election is coming up. I do hope that people would vote for candidates and parties that have a really tough China stance instead of those who say, oh, we have to sell our cars so that we have to vote, uh, so that we have to stay in the market and so on. So that, so that gets to my point. Your, your answer to this question of how do you try to force some kind of fundamental change in Hong Kong is, in effect, a set of China policies in the West that are quite confrontational. It's not a it's not a policy of engagement. I'd say we try to engage. For example, I would take Germany as an example. For the last 25 years, Germany is one of the most engaging country with China. But it leads Germany nowhere but into like more entangled with China economically and uh, politically so that it cannot like easily decouple. I'm not saying confrontation is always good, but we have seen that policy of engagement doesn't work the way we wanted it to be, then maybe we should try new things. And at the same time, there will be a lot of things that are happening on the ground in Hong Kong that might be not so visible. But is the West still like looking into what's happening in Hong Kong or are they simply turning a blind eye into saying that, oh, that's the national security law, we cannot intervene, there's nothing we can do and so on. And I, I do feel very frustrated because it seems to be a dead end. But I still think there are a lot of things to do on a global community level and on the local level, like by everyone that's involved. Cedric, how do you see it? 
Yeah, I think Glacier said it all. Like during during many decades, uh, the democracies have been leading that policy of engagement with China, saying, "Oh, things will get better. Let's do business. Let's make sure that uh, China makes money. Let's make sure that there is an exchange, and then the freedoms will follow." Obviously. Uh, this does not work like this. There has never been so much business with China, and actually, over 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 the the past six or seven years, the situation is much much worse than before. There used to be a, a certain sort of investigative journalism ten or fifteen years ago that is currently disappearing. Uh, it wasn't naive to imagine that Hong Kong, at the time of after handover, could become some kind of a model for the rest of China. And by suppressing freedoms in Hong Kong, currently uh, the, the Chinese regime is also suppressing the hope for the Chinese people everywhere in China to have improvements, because Hong Kong somehow represented until now some kind of a target to, to which you know um, other Chinese people could hope for. And the more uh, freedoms are suppressed in Hong Kong, and the harder it is for people in the rest of China uh, to uh, claim for these freedoms. It, it makes it even worse because currently uh, China is trying to question the very definition of journalism worldwide or the very definition of freedoms. And I guess I wanted Stephen to ask you about that because, you know, there's a, there's a risk here that journalists, activists sitting around talking about freedom of speech, you know, it's pretty easy to guess which side we're going to come out on on this particular debate. When China began to open up, Part of the argument for journalism was that if China wanted to integrate in the world, if China wanted to get foreign direct investment, if China wanted to see its economy grow, then actually journalistic scrutiny was a good thing, not least because it would underpin investor confidence in what China was doing. And implicit in what we've talked about is an idea that China's made a calculation that it doesn't actually need journalism, it doesn't need freedom of speech, for Hong Kong itself still to prosper. And I wondered whether or not you think that calculation is right, or whether or not the erosion of freedom of speech is itself the precursor to the erosion of Hong Kong as a global financial centre. I think these things are all connected. I mean, China is in the mood and this will only this um, comparison will only make sense to, to British people of Millwall supporters. No one likes us, and we don't care. China is sort of shouting, "No one likes us, and we don't care." If you look at the Pew polls that have been taken around the world, China's popularity is sinking through the floor. You look at the attitude of governments towards China who are regarding China as a strategic enemy. China now believes. You don't need all this nonsense of having foreign correspondents roaming around the country reporting. You don't need all this nonsense about making nice through diplomacy. On the contrary, Chinese diplomats are expected to be maximum aggressive in their dealings with people overseas. China has reached a position where it's concluded that it's so strong now that it can engage with the world on its own terms. It doesn't need to worry about how the world thinks. And China has this arrogant confidence. And you know, this is something which dictatorships throughout history have had, is that at the end of the day, the rest of the world will need to do business with it, will shut up and get on with it. So the prospects are pretty dismal. 
Well, well, then let me ask you, and I'm going to ask Cedric and Glacier too, a final thought, which is, if you could whisper in the ear of President Biden, Prime Minister Johnson, President Macron, whoever the next leader of Germany might be, what you would like them to do in their policy vis-a-vis China, right? And a sort of hierarchy from vocal protest to forced disinvestments to sanctions of certain individuals or companies to a coalition that threatens more meaningful, possibly even hard power responses if certain lines are crossed. Stephen, what would your advice be to those leaders? What do you think is a realistic ask of the West as it tries to address this particular problem of freedom of speech in Hong Kong? I think I would go back to what Glacier said earlier. She said, you know, you can have your conscience or you can have your business. I think I would say, if you come from a government, if you come from a society that has values, don't abandon those values when it comes to dealing with China. At the end of the day, for all this aggressive talk of, unless you shut up, we won't do business for you. The reality is China needs the outside world as much as the outside world needs China. And don't belittle yourself. Cedric? Yeah, I was about to say the same. Stand for your values. That's essential. Over the past decades, there has been that red carpet policy towards Chinese officials, towards the regime. Democracies were actually behaving just like a carpet. So it's, it has to stop. They have to stand for what they believe in. They have to be an exemplar, by the way, because of course, like uh, the more democracies respect freedom of the press, the more they respect fundamental freedoms, the more credible they are. The Chinese regime has this very cynical approach to say, well, the Western countries say that, but they actually don't do what they say. So why should we? Uh, So we have to be an exemplar. But yes, stand for the values and don't hesitate to confront China because China has never made any gift to other country. Uh, If the Chinese regime buys airplanes produced by a country, it's not because uh, they want to be nice with that country, it's because they need these airplanes. Business is about purchasing what you need. Glacia, how do you see it? I'm going to give you the last word. Um, The last word is when all of the foreign governments are like, complaining about the deterioration of democracy worldwide, they are basically the one who is pushing it because they abandon their values in human rights and democracy at the first place, especially when they're dealing with China. So it's very important that values and business, you only get to choose one. And I think one of the most apparent example of China always need the world is that recently they try to impose the anti-sanction laws in, in Hong Kong that will punish any company that follows foreign sanctions. For example, if someone follow US sanctions and do- doesn't give Carrie Lam her credit card or her visa card, then that company would be punished. And after this, the news like kind of came out, the, the stock market of China just dropped and then China suddenly said, oh, we're going to postpone it. So it's actually kind of apparent that China always needs the world as well. It's not like only the world needs China, but not the other way around. So I'd say, please like stand up for their values and stand up for democracy and freedom. Well, well listen, Glacier Cedric, Stephen, thank you. I, I wanted to say, This has been quite a chastening conversation for me because the truth is I went into this whole series of thinkings, all of these podcasts, with this awkward, rather embarrassing prejudice, which is please don't make me join the camp of the confrontationalists, right? I I grew up with a China 
that frankly was different. It was just easy to be more optimistic, to think that, you know, the arc of history was going to bend towards justice. And just this whole conversation, this last sort of, see, this last 20 minutes or so has made me think it's time. It's time just to face up to the fact that this China, Xi Jinping's China, the China of the national security law is really different. And hearing Stephen, the sort of details of censorship, the practicalities of it, and Cedric, your examples of just journalists who, you know, host a conversation in the Foreign Correspondents Club. And actually, Glacier, I should say, it's really emotional kind of looking at you there in Germany, thinking what you're doing and trying to do and the sacrifice you make. All of that makes me stop and think, yes, there is something really significant that's happening here. And we're all underestimating the speed and scale of the suffocation of freedom of speech of Hong Kong and as a result of Hong Kong itself. And so way beyond China's obsession with Jimmy Lai or Apple Daily, it's that everyday suffocation of those rights and freedoms that makes me feel, yes, there is time to do something and do something probably quite profoundly different in the way in which we think about handling China. So thank you for a detailed and fascinating and for me, most importantly, a chastening conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Glacier. Thanks, Cedric. I really appreciate it. I'm really conscious that we're missing something here. A heartfelt voice, a person speaking up in that affronted tone that says, you've been captured by one side of the argument. You're not giving us, the pro-Beijing Hong Kongers, the microphone. You're not really listening to that point of view at all. I just want to acknowledge that, particularly because it taught us we prize civilised disagreement. We're not only a slow newsroom, we're an open one. And we want people to come in and tell us what they think. We want you to challenge what we think. So I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast, but better still, we'd really love you to join our newsroom. You can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend, and you can use my code, James50, to get 50% off. You'll get access to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts, and you'll be able to participate in our live thinkings. That's where we continue to try and make sense of what's happening in the world every day. So thank you very much for listening. But also thank you to Glacier, to Steve and to Cedric for the conversation. This episode was produced by Morgan Charles and Klitsia Sala with help from Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. And Thinking with James Harding is a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas and Basha Cummings. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.